Video recordings of this podcast can be found on RaisingEquity.org and Raising Equity on YouTube. Welcome to Raising Equity. You know, we like to try to take complex concepts and break them down in ways that, well, we as adults can understand them better and maybe engage in conversations with kids. But remember, the goal of Raising Equity is being adults in the lives of children that can support them in developing an equity mindset, which means we have to be able to see and understand systems and be able to dissect them in ways to understand what's happening rather than just getting caught up in our emotions or in our defensiveness. And I think what's happening in the American society with the Trump's racist tweets and telling Congresswomen to go back where they came from and a lot of the conversation about is this racist, is this not, pushes us to not conflate all of what's happening as uh, just racism or good or bad, but to really have complex conversations about the layers of not only what's in people's words, but how their behavior aligns with larger systems of oppression. So as I was thinking through all the layers that I saw, I thought, who would I want to have this conversation with on camera? And I thought of a colleague, Dr. Richard Harvey, who is a psychologist, and he is not only a psychologist in social psychology to understand groups of people and their behavior, but he's also a professor of industrial organizational psychology, which understands institutions and group and organizational behavior. I'm so pleased that he was able to come to the table quickly to talk to me about the recent events so that we can understand them from a different perspective and be able to have complex concepts understood in more everyday terms. So thanks for joining me. Pleasure to be here. Uh, so I wanted us to just start off with the comments that have really created this firestorm, right? So the question of these four junior congresswomen being told to go back to their countries. Racist? Not racist. I, I asked that question, but I actually want to talk about the fact that we even ask that question, that we are so concerned with pointing the finger rather than thinking about how our language and words can be problematic and prop up systems, not just trying to root out evil people and throw them out. What are your thoughts? Well, no, I think that we have to think about behavior like this. Sometimes there's a tendency, I think, to kind of see these as isolated incidents, right? And when you see it as an isolated incident, right, then you can kind of have fun with the ambiguities of it, right? You can kind of pick it apart. You have to place them in the context, right? This is not a single event, right? This is a link on a long chain of behavior from an individual. And to me, when you put it in that context, right, you know, that is what gives it meaning. And so this idea that you can just kind of, you know, attribute it to random choice of words is nonsense, right, in light of the individual um, that we're talking about. Yeah. So, and yeah. it's interesting because I was, where I initially went was this idea of perpetual foreigner. And I want to come back to that. Mm -hmm. um, but as I was reading and thinking, I'm like, wait a minute, he said the same thing about Kaepernick, right? right? He should be fired. He should go back to where he came from. Right. So people would have a hard time arguing that it's not about race right. and that it's not a pattern. And right. there are probably other examples that I can't think of. Right. right. Yeah. So, you know, th there's an interesting study that was done many years ago that, that showed really using an, a more implicit technique, right? That in the minds of most people, American equals white, 
Mm. Right? So, so, so to be an American means to be white, which means that if you're not white, right, by deduction, then you're not American. Uh, and I think that unless you catch that raw emotion and you correct it, you will automatically default to anybody that looks different or acts different or says anything that might be sort of considered anti-American, you know, uh, um, automatically. Well, I should say anybody that does anything that's sort of anti-white or doesn't conform to white culture is automatically not American. Yeah. And yeah. the interesting thing there is that our Supreme Court actually did say you had to be white to be a citizen of this country. Yes. Right. So, People will say, oh, well, you know, that that's not true. Anyone can be American. Or you think about indigenous folks who are the true Americans. But what you're suggesting is that research has shown we, we put those two together, right? American, white. We correlate them. Right. And our laws have helped that happen. The, the Supreme Court case of um, Azawa and Thind, which we won't go into, but if folks are interested, you can look up the history, basically said you have to be white to be a citizen. And then when the second case came back, Thin came back and said, oh, well, if you're going to use this bad science to say what is white and what is Aryan, I, as a Southeast, South Asian um, person, am also white. They're like, oh, no, 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 no. It's what the common man knows that it is. (laughs) So we have, you can look at the legal documents, the laws. We said American equals white. And so that's burning our heads. And so it, it frustrates me when people say, oh, well, that's in the past. But no, we're hearing the rhetoric now. Well, and it's not just in the legal system. It's in every institution, right? From housing to education to employment to the criminal justice system to healthcare, including Hollywood, right? We have basically said that unless you are white, you will not be given the benefits of, quote unquote, being an American in either of those institutions, right? So we've essentially, you know, equated those two, even the way that we've treated people, even if we didn't say it, and we did say it, right, legally, right? But we've said it by our actions, once again, in a historical context throughout time in this country. So that pattern is so important for people to understand that it's not just people being upset with Trump, although people are upset with Trump. Right. Um, and, and it's not simply an attack on Republicans, exactly. right? Like this is a pattern of behavior that our American society has engaged in. He's simply, uh, you could say a symptom of this larger disease. He's a link on a long chain. That's a better way to, that's Mm -hmm. a nicer way to say that, Mm -hmm. Richard. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So this idea of the perpetual foreigner also comes up, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that like, if, if American equals white, then if you're not, you're always seen as a, as a foreigner. And I first learned about this concept with studying Asian Americans experience right. in right. our society. Cause this whole thing of like, where are you from? Oh no, no. Where are you really from? Or where are your people from? And that in reality we see, or I should say in this current example, we see any person of color being seen as a perpetual foreigner that you could go back to a place from which you came. Right. Even if you were born here. You know, it just hit me, right, that that white folks are the only folks who don't have to take a test to be a citizen of this country, right? We, we make immigrants take a test, a test that I would venture to guess that most folks who are, quote unquote, naturalized citizens probably couldn't pass, right? Because <laughs> it, it, it regards knowledge of the history of this country, knowledge of current political governmental structures. And in some ways, even naturalized black and brown folks have to take 
a test, mm. right? A test of your American, right? So you've got to pledge allegiance to the flag. You've got to walk in line. As long as you do that, we will give you, quote unquote, you know, citizenship. But don't kneel. Right. Don't don't kneel when you're supposed to be, you know, <laughs> standing up. Right. Right. And, and so what I'm saying is that in some ways, the, the perpetual uh, um, foreigner uh, um, the only way one overcomes that is to consistently pass the test, mm. right? You know, both literally, but also figuratively. Well, I mean, um, that— And it's yeah. not a test, right, that white folks have to take. Interesting. Well, so that what that gets to is that, like, they almost have more, more room to flex. Oh, yeah. They yeah. have more um, space to, to say things or to, to critique. Because I think about— to critique America, so that's part of what caused Trump to have this reaction, right? Right. Um, is that uh, the young Congresswomen who have been really pushing to to question what, what we're doing, like what are we doing here? It's not working for everyone, right. Right. right? And I actually think that if I love something, I'm going to take the energy and time to critique it. Of course. If I hate it and I don't have any care for it, why would I spend my energy? trying to write it. And so it, it, it's almost this contradiction. People try to say to critique America is to hate it. No, actually, that means you love it enough to try to make it better. Right. I mean, you know, to invest your emotion into something, right, requires that you care about it. Yeah. Otherwise, you're not going to, I mean, you might invest thought, but you're not going to invest emotion into things that you don't care about. Right. right. So so interesting that it gets interpreted as being anti-American as opposed to being the most pro-American that one could possibly be. You know, th this kind of brings up a concept that I've been kind of playing around with as of late, something I refer to as the margin of error problem. Mm. Uh, um, now, I'll try not to be too academic here. <laughs> it's a statistical concept, so that's bringing up bad memories and vibes for folks who had people. to take statistics. But most people are probably familiar with the concept around polling, right? We're, when we are given the results of a poll, we are presented with the margin of error, right? And basically what that refers to is the latitude of acceptability that we allow that estimate to be. Uh, um, and so, uh, in, in a probably more figurative way, um, margin of error really refers to the different latitudes of acceptability that exists for the behavior of whites as opposed to, say, non-whites, right? With non-whites, that latitude of acceptability is much more narrow. If you're too good, like a Serena Williams or a Tiger Woods, you will get the scorn of white folks who feel like you're stepping out of line. And if you're bad, right, you will get the same kind of scorn, right? Uh, I mean, you're called a thug, you're called all kinds of behavior. Whereas I think with whites, that latitude of acceptability is much broader. Uh, um, perfect example of this is some years ago, there was actually a movement actually driven by whites called Criming While White. I don't know if you're familiar with no, that. No, I'm not. It was a website in which white Folks were reporting on their, you know, juvenile antics, right? Deeds that they did that in many ways, right, uh, many uh, uh, non-white folks ended up going to prison for. But these were things that literally they got slaps on the wrist. And part of what they were really trying to demonstrate is that as white folks, right, we're given much more latitude with the police. 
right? We're given, you know, things that other folks would have been jailed for. You know, we were in, like, plenty of those examples exist now, right? Yep. We got white rapist, you know, who gets six months because he's a good kid and he, they see a his future, swimmer. right? Whereas that exact same behavior among a non-white person basically got that person landed in prison. So once again, the latitudes of acceptability are different. Yeah. You know, and I think this kind of issue that we're talking about here, I think, represent yet another example of that. Yeah. So this idea that they could critique the country and be called on American and say, go back to their country, but a white person might critique the country and be seen as a really visionary leader. Right. Well, well, I mean, you know, Donald Trump, before he was president, was the biggest critiquer of this country anybody's seen. Right. The country in Corton Hill was going backwards. The country was horrible. We were pansies in the world. I mean, look at the language that he used about the United States of America under the leadership of Barack Obama. And he wasn't right? considered unpatriotic or un-American. Because of latitude of acceptability. He was a change agent, right? Right. You know, he, he was a driver of change. Right. Right. So, so, but, you know, that's not true about these four women, right? right who literally were elected to come in there and be drivers of change. Yes. It's not seen as that way. From them. No. It's, it's all of a sudden un-American. Right. Right. And, and I've seen a lot of conflation of like, thinking about Antifa and violence and, you know, trying to conflate their vision for change with Mm -hmm. all sorts of uh, really violent rhetoric and ideology. Interesting. So this whole criming while white thing, though, Mm -hmm. I have to go back to that because uh, early on in the podcast, we talked to um, a group of white women in uh, Memphis who decided that they were going to go to the mall and wear hoodies. Right about. So it's similar, right? So this whole idea that, and, and, one of the women just messaged me last night and said, do you think if if a, a group of white women sold single cigarettes outside of Target oh, wow. that we would be arrested, Wow, you know, ch- choked and wouldn't be able to breathe? I'm like, of course not. So they're thinking about trying to take the exact ways in which black people have been perpetrated mm-hmm. against, uh, insulted, and and they're try they're going to try to mirror it. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a, it's similar but different. Well, you know, there, there's a series of social experiments. I'm going to mess up his name, but I think his name is John Quinones. Um, I think he's with NBC. You know, they've done they do these little things. What would you do? Yes. kind of episodes, right? So they have this one where they've got uh, a bike that's clearly been abandoned in a park and it's on a chain, right? And they swap out the people who. Like somebody's literally trying to cut the chain on this bike, right? So they they start with, I think, a white male and nobody really pays him any attention or something like that. You know, I mean, then they they put a black male doing it. Immediately, the cops are called. People actually literally try to intervene with him, right? And then they put a white female and literally somebody actually offers to help her. Right. And so it's a perfect example, right? The latitudes of acceptability, right? right. This behavior is immediately deemed criminal, yeah. right? When it's done by a non-white person, but when it's a white person, in the case of the white male, it's still ambiguous enough that nobody really knows to take action with the female, right? It's the last thing they think. It's clearly her bike, right? And she needs help cutting this chain that's keeping her from her destiny, mm. right? So, so once again, this sort of, you know, margin, margin of, error. of error. Yeah, problem, that's, so. a, that's a really good theory. I mm-hmm. like I like it. It fits. Mm-hmm. It also makes me think about some research in the education field. Mm-hmm. So they'll look at behavior of kids. And mm-hmm. if, the, if the behavior is perpetrated, I shouldn't say perpetrated, if the behavior is of a, 
of a black student mm-hmm. that it's seen as more egregious mm-hmm. at a, as a higher level infraction mm-hmm. than the same behavior coming from a white student. Right. So again, this kind of margin for error mm-hmm. and like this mm-hmm. idea that kids will be kids. Well, you don't really get that margin right. of error when you're a kid of color, even in elementary school. Right. 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 Oh, yeah. And I think, uh, um, I think, are you referencing Jennifer Eberhardt's work um, or? I, it wasn't Eberhardt, okay. but it, her work would speak to that as well. Right. Because what she demonstrated, which I think is sort of an expansion of what you said, is not only are you probably likely to see that kid's behavior as in violation, but you're also likely to see it more as indicative of a potential future problem, right? This is a problem kid. And so now we're going to start tracking him, right? And noticing every little thing that he does. And calling it out in the ways that you don't track the behavior, right? You know, of white kids, and so yeah, so it's it's interesting. Mm. That's it's a. I hope you. I hope you do publish that because yeah. that helps. That helps make sense of a lot of what we're seeing. Well, and think about right. So, so if we apply it to this context, we're paying very careful attention to what we consider to be the anti-American rhetoric of these you know, newcomers in the Congress, but are we paying as much attention to the old guard Republicans, right? Who, I mean, think about it. If at the end of Donald Trump's time in the presidency, if we were to say, okay, now folks, we need to make America great again, wouldn't that sound anti? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it implies something about the current status quo. Right. right? And yet it was, once it was seen, it was seen as a pro-American. Yes. Right message in, but I would suggest to you that it would be an anti-American mm. message mm. if we said that, because once again, it depends upon the context in which you say that. In. Right, right. I feel like we should name these young congresswomen, right? So they they call themselves the Squad, Squad, right? And I think we're we're talking about how race plays a role and how people are seeing them, like you're over entitled, but I also think age plays a role too, sure. right? Like the oh, you young folks, you come in and. And you just think you're taken over. So I do agree that that there is some. It'll be interesting to hear how the rhetoric shifts for the Republican Party. But I even think for the Democratic Party, right? Their willingness to to um, I don't know if I want to say like accept the push for sure. change sure. because if we think about like King's letter from Birmingham Jail, like he talks about the moderate whites as well. Sure. Sure. And there's a lot of Democrats that have kind of just hung out and not really spoken out against racism and here these here the squad comes you know these young women of color and and they're not they're not sitting down they're sure. coming in and and pushing pretty hard sure sure yeah you know i mean right this has always been a problem with change and that is that um you know people come i mean even the folks that have been there for a while right when they came when they were the new people they came to sort of make change and i think what tends to happen with most folks is that you realize that perhaps you were a little bit more idealistic than practical. Um, and so you sort of go through sort of a re-education <laughs> program of trying to figure out, okay, so how can we do sort of practical things? I think part of the problem that happens is that after a while, you kind of get sucked into the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in some ways you lose your ideal and you just become practical. Mm. Um, and so, and I think that just continues to sort of happen. People sort of go there, they kind of become idealists, they're idealists when they get there, they become practical, and I think they kind of lose some of that idealization. 
But um, as a study, as a, as a researcher of oppression, does it feel, it feels to me, it feels like we're at a time where we don't have the luxury of nope. getting sucked in. It nope. feels, it feels like high stakes. Like, I don't know if you saw people passing around like the, the path to genocide. Right. Mm-hmm. And we've been, we've been doing the dehumanization. We're doing we, like, we are at a place. I feel like where it's almost like this margin of error analogy that you said, mm-hmm. like, how much are we willing to allow to happen? Sure. Well, and see, so, yeah, the part of what I was going to say is that, so one of the things that's really different, and in some ways, right, um, Donald J. Trump is the indicator of this. And that is that now I think the scales toward change are so tipped that we no longer care right, if people are practical. Right. Mm. I mean, Donald Trump is not practical, right? Not a single one of his agenda ideas have really been pushed forward. Right? But people were so thirsty for change that they no longer really sort of tried to vet it against the practice in ways in which we've treated everybody else. Right? Everybody else had to really show themselves to have competence. Right. I mean, people questioned whether or not Barack Obama had been a senator long enough before running for president, right? Nobody questioned whether the fact that Donald J. Trump has never held a political position in his life, right? I mean, that's how fast we went from trying to make sure that people had the competence and so therefore they could be practical so they could get things done versus people who just came in were ideologues, right? And and in some ways we were, you know, uh, we were so thirsty just to hear people talk you know, about these sort of radical ideas that we were willing to kind of throw practicality out the window. And so I think that's kind of where we're at now. And I think the people who sent the squad to Congress mm-hmm. were basically saying, look, don't go there mm. and try to be, quote unquote, practical. Go there and really push for these ideas, right? You know, we'll, you'll kind of figure it out once you get there. Mm. Um, and then so I, I think that's kind of where, and I think that's where some of the tension is. Right? Mm-hmm. The tension is between people who kind of went there in a different time and had to, quote unquote, earn their marks versus these sort of other folks who sort of come in there and they're more ideologues. Mm-hmm. And I think it's sort of working out the tensions between the ideologies and the, you know, how do you practically get things done? Yeah, you're mm-hmm. right. And I do think it's important for us to think about the larger ideologies and not get too sucked into the exact quote of the day. Because oh, yeah. there's there's important there's important shifts that are happening. Like mm-hmm. I think about you know, and people have talked about a lot about how you know when we think about the internment of Japanese Americans right. and how right. when we're shifting to to putting asylum seekers in these internment camps, right. all the rights that they then lose and and we don't have to track in the same ways sure. if they were in our our federal government agencies and. Sure. In the way that they were, like I feel like the stakes are high, and I'm not trying to be dramatic, True. but um, the our reaction or our ability to like name the racism within, whether it's a tweet or an action, um, I almost feel like it's a litmus test for like how far are we gonna are we gonna call a spade a spade come 2020, exactly. leading up to 2020. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I am not so much afraid of Donald Trump. He is who he is, right? He is he is who he has always been. He's consistent. Right, he's consistent. As much as I'm afraid of the people who um, are supporters, I mean, once he's gone, and, you know, whether he's gone after next year or he's gone after another five years, one day he's going to be gone, 
right? And we're going to be dealing with the residue of him. And we're going to be dealing with those people who supported him, right? And, you know, and I'm, and, you know, I choose, well, there's going to be a tremendous amount of cognitive dissonance yes. going on there, right? In terms of people having, in the same way that Nazi prison guards had to deal with the cognitive dissonance after sort of what they did, coming to terms with, you know, and there were all kinds of, you know, justifications. Well, you know, we were fearing for our lives. We were complying, but we weren't really sort of buying into this thing. I think you can have some of that same kind of rhetoric going on here. So it's going to be interesting to kind of see, like, like after Donald J. Trump, right? And now there's some kind of restoration of truth to what's happening in, det- in these detention centers, right? I think you're going to hear that kind of rhetoric from the mm. people that are sort of involved. Mm-hmm. Were you just following orders or did you really sort of buy into this thing? And I think that's that's the residue that it's going to take as many more years to work through that than Donald Trump. So yeah. for me this is a this is a much larger problem than him. It is it, and and it's it speaks to like the Wayfair employees striking and and refusing to to be a part of building equipment for these spaces or um, you know, when you think about people who've quit because of whether the treat- mistreatment they've seen or the assaults that they've seen, the sexual assaults that they've seen. And yeah, I think you're right. It's already happening and we're going to continue to have to sure. wrestle with it, which sure. brings me to this, the piece of him saying, oh, I don't have a racist bone in my body. <laughs> uh, and, you know, the reason I'm even going to entertain talking about that <laughs> is because I, I think it's really important for people to understand that we can't, uh, that we have to be willing to understand racism as a system and right. not just individual behavior. Of course, in, individual behavior matters, but to get overly identified with, are they a racist or are you a racist, sure. is sure. is a waste of time. Right. right. And we live in a racist system. So how are you going to not have a racist bone in your body? Exactly. You know, I mean, yeah, and I think sh- changing the paradigm from thinking of racism as something that is a disease, it's rare, and thereby it's something that some people have and other people don't have, is the wrong frame, right? Racism is something that's in the air, and we're all breathing it. We're all ingesting racism. And I think that's the appropriate frame. Uh, um, You know, yeah, I think it's right to kind of pivot away from (laughs) when you you know, mention that quote, I'm thinking, okay, now it's the part of the show where it's comedy hour, right? <laughs> I mean, first of all, what races ever thought they were racist right. to begin with? And so t- since when do we take the, the you word. know, the self-perceptions uh, of racists? Uh, um, uh, um. And frankly, you know, I, I use an analogy in my classes um, and I ask my students, do you think a fish knows what it feels like to be wet? Uh, now, it turns out this is a question that stumps both philosophers and Google users alike. <laughs> and ironically enough, they've all come to the same conclusion. The answer is no, right? Because in order to, pre- to appreciate wetness, you have to know dryness, right? And since a fish has never been dry and lived to tell about it, right, uh, um, they don't understand wetness. And so think about it. Isn't it interesting that the thing in which you have been immersed in all your life is the thing that you're least qualified to explain? And I think that's racism in America, right? We are so embedded in it that, frankly, we can't describe it because it's all we've ever felt. It's all we've ever known, right? So so how do you put your finger on that thing that you've breathed in and breathed out 
virtually all of your life. And so, so I don't think Donald Trump would even know what the indicators were to look for to tell himself if he were racist. He right? would Because it's so embedded, right, in his sort of privileged world, right, to sort of have that. And so, yeah. So, so I think, once again, as we pivot and think about the larger situation, we're so embedded in this fish tank um, that um, it's really hard for us to even put our finger on what it is. I think we have some indices. Right. We're like a fish that's beginning to catch a clue, right? Mm-hmm. Who's managed to be able to peek outside of the tank and notice that there's a there's a reality outside the tank. But I don't think we can truly comprehend what that reality is until we're taken out of the tank. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're preaching today. And I think about even just this the the way that people want to point to the most extreme examples, right? So racism is right. the KKK. Right. Right. Racism is cross burning or someone explicitly expressing hate and then acting on that hate. Whereas you said, it's 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 bigger than that. And it it unfortunately can be more subtle than that. And we're all breathing it in. So Tatum, Beverly Tatum talks about, you know, if we're breathing it in, we're going to cough it up sometime. (laughs) So if we're breathing in smog, we can't help but cough it up sometimes. And so rather than play the whole, oh, I don't have a prejudice bone in my body game, right? How can we be aware of our biases, um, our prejudices, and then choose not to act on them, to not be another link in the long chain uh, and to not perpetuate the pattern? Yeah, yeah I, I think, you know, the question isn't whether or not we're prejudiced. The answer is yes. Um, the question is, what are you doing about yours? Yep. What actions are you taking? Uh, um, to kind of, uh, um, you know, to make sure that your raw prejudices don't automatically become action tendencies. Yeah. Well, I mean, I appreciate you sitting down with me because part of what I really wanted to do was to address what President Trump said and break it down, but to also make sure that we don't get caught up in that and not point to the larger issue. Right. Because that's what concerns me and why sometimes I don't comment on things that he says, because I feel like sometimes it's, you know, to, to create a distraction for other things that are happening. Exactly. Um, sometimes I think it's just like, where do I even start? <laughs> it can very easily be a distraction from, from a much more systemic thing. And so we have to resist the temptation to go for the low-hanging fruit. Yes. And he's definitely been plenty of low-hanging fruit, yes. right? Um, we have to resist the temptation for that and keep our sight on the much larger tree. Because once again, once he's gone, we're still stuck with the tree. Yep. <laughs> and there are plenty of like white nationalist groups who are saying he's doing what we wanted him to do. Oh, he's doing what we elected him to do. Absolutely. So even if we look beyond him to see what groups are supporting him, what groups are are encouraged by what he's saying, um, that gives us some clue about what we're up against. Yeah, and, and I mean, yeah, that brings up a whole issue. And that is, once again, I think the wrong question is whether or not he's a racist. I think the right question is, is he facilitating racism? Yes. Right? So even, you know, we could vacillate between the first question, whether or not he's a racist or not. It requires, to some degree, to be able to kind of, you know, peek inside of his soul and be able to do that. I don't want to but, peek in his soul. <laughs> right. <laughs> Might scare us. Um, but, but. Is he perpetuating racism? Oh, that's low-hanging fruit, right? There, there are plenty of indicators. Even members of his own party have answered that question. 
And that's what right. I wish that we would be willing to name, right? So Pelosi was was said to have broken a rule on the floor that said, oh, you you know, you, you got, we got to strike your words because I believe the rule said something like you have to stay on topic at hand and you can't speak to someone's personality. Mm-hmm. And I'm with you that whether he's racist or not, like, I actually don't think that's personality. It's a whole other conversation. Like his behavior aligns with racism and racist systems. And we need to be able to say that without saying that you're slinging mud. If you are perpetuating racism, if you're perpetuating a system that disproportionately gives advantages to some and and denies opportunities to others, why can't we name that? Sure, sure. And acknowledge that that can be done, you know, Unintentionally as well as intentionally, yes. right? And so, so the sense is is that it's possible to accidentally, you know, facilitate something. And in that way, right? You know, that's not a sin that only conservatives are guilty of, right? Not at all. And so, in that sense, all of us are in some ways perpetuators and perhaps victims of that same system. So, so I think, I think once again, if you shift the frame from thinking of racist to thinking about racism. Right then, then I think you can kind of acknowledge the fact that yes, a lot of what he does fans the flames of racism. Whether or not he's a racist is to me not the question. It's really not, and it's reminding me. I spoke with Maggie Hagerman, who wrote the book White Kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with her work. She's an ethnographer, and so she's basically like embedded her lives her herself in the life lives of thirty white families, mm-hmm. and you know drove people to. To, to practices and hung out at the houses and all that. One of the schools that some of the kids went to passed a, a policy that you can't call someone racist. <laughs> but it would be like calling someone a racial slur. Right, right. And it's like, hold up, wait a minute. But if racism happens, how do you talk about it? Right. right. Because we've so individualized it. It's a bad right. word. We right. can't say it. Right. And so part of me wants to be like, okay, fine. It's about a system anyway. But what I realized is that people were so scared to even name right. when the behavior, the symptom of this larger problem was happening, that they just banned the word. So that mean you can't call people a murderer or a rapist or a burglar? Now you or, know. You know, uh, um, right? I mean, these are terms that are used to refer to violations in society, right? Uh, um, and so what makes that particular... Uh, um, violation unspeakable you know, unspeakable right whereas other violations are in other words if you're going to apply a policy like that right you know can you make it stand on all four legs can you apply it to all of the violations that we have what's so special about that one right if it has nothing to do with race it's just scary to talk about right. it's too scary to talk right. about and that's where i hope like with raising equity i'm trying to encourage um, and create a community of folks who are willing to talk about oppression. Right. Let's name it. Let's talk about it. It's happening. It's right. the elephant in the room. Right. So let's talk about it sure. rather than have it operating and be unable to to articulate any sorts of words about it, which means our kids can't fix it. Sure. And this whole idea that, oh, those people will die off and the kids will save us. No, because they're breathing in the same smog. No. no. It doesn't work that way. Well, you know, it's a similar kind of experiment, right? For years and years, we've tried to avoid talking about politics and religion at the table. And where that's gotten us is that um, we can't even tolerate conversations around that, you know. So 
if we did just sort of face the music, we'd at least be in a better perspective to understand where each of us are coming from. Now we just have gross ignorance about those things. And I think it's the same thing here. There's gross ignorance about even the arguments that people are trying to make with respect to racism, right? You know, we're not trying to, like, example, right? We're not talking about racist. Right. right? We're talking about racism. Right. And if people would just sort of chill out and listen for a moment or two, right, they would hear that. Right. So no one's trying to label you with this disease. Right. Because like it's not a disease. It, it's it's a toxin. Right? You know, and so, so so I'm thinking that, you know, but but not having the conversation prevents you from hearing that and therefore you never get it correct. So in many ways, we're we're having straw man arguments. We're not understanding each side. Um, and when we come to the, t- in those brief moments in which we come to the table, it's gross ignorance. We're talking past each other rather than talking to each other because we won't sit down and have a careful, deliberate conversation yes. about this issue. Yeah, you're right. You're so right. And so we need to think about how do we cultivate and build the capacity and cultivate the ability to have those conversations. Yeah. I was at the gym the other night and literally watching like CNN and Fox up on the wall, many TVs. <laughs> and it was fascinating, fascinating to see what was covered, what wasn't, how oh, yeah. it was covered, what was the frame, oh, yeah. right? So to watch them both side by side, we have, we've, we've, we've limited our ability to be able to sit down and talk to each oh, other and, and to disagree. Absolutely. So I really appreciate you sitting down with me. If folks want to hear more from you or learn more about your work. How could they learn more about you? Do you have a website? I do have a webpage. Um, You can navigate your way to it um, from the St. Louis University Department of Psychology page. There is a list of publications, a list of some of the stuff that I do in terms of workshops, um, as well as even the courses that I teach. People are welcome to take my classes. Awesome. And on occasion, um, people wander by my office. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you, Richard. I hope you all take him up on that. Really, check out his work. He actually created Oppression Monopoly, where he tweaked the rules of Monopoly so that you could get a sense and understand some of the basic concepts of oppression. Um, his his psychology of oppression class is totally worth taking. And uh, check out some of his publications. And I hope that our conversation today helped you to think about the the flashpoints, the headlines that we're seeing in a more complex way and to not get so caught up in, in one action, but to see the larger pattern. So thank you so much for joining me on Raising Equity. I'll see you next time.